and welcome to the Fundamental Value Podcast, hosted by Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with leading analysts, traditional finance and digital asset firms, and investigate how leading minds in the cryptocurrency space, research, analyze, and quantify the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer, this podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. Today, I'm excited to be joined by David Mickley, Business Development Director at Wintermute. David, it's great to have you on. Josh, it is a pleasure and honor to be here. So, so let's start. Let's start at the beginning. You know, we're going to riff a little bit throughout this this episode. David and I are good friends, and you know, have become have become good friends over his his first few years at crypto. So, you know, hopefully, this will be a fun episode. We'll riff a little bit, but why don't we start? Walk us through the life of David Mickley. Let's skip birth. Let's skip the first few years and go into uh, starting your career as a mensch. And then, you know, how you kind of went from the world of Jewish philanthropy into MIT, into Bridgewater. So give us that story. How, how did this happen? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, you know, and it, it takes a mensch to know a mensch. So, um, you know, I am half the mensch that you are, Josh, but honored to be called a mensch by a mensch. So... <laughs> Yeah, I started my career as a professional in the Jewish community. My first job was recruiting seventh graders to go to Hebrew school on Sundays. And that was actually my first sales job. First time I ever did any sales. And it was the hardest sell I've ever done. Convincing a 14-year-old to spend their Sunday mornings at Hebrew school, very, very hard. Um, I had a tactic. I had a strategy. I would take the kids out for ice cream, let them order whatever they want. And then would tell them about Hebrew school. And that was my secret sales strategy, which, you know, works on adults for trading crypto also. So when in doubt, use ice cream. But yeah, had a few jobs after that. Um, worked as a fundraiser, lived in Tel Aviv for a few years, working with startups and students. And then eventually made my way to business school at MIT, studied finance, went to Bridgewater. Uh, that was an interesting experience, was there for a bit. And then found my way to Floating Point Group, a crypto startup founded by MIT undergrads, who you know very well. Um, and that was my foray into crypto and then joined Wintermute at the beginning of this year. And so I, I guess the lesson from this story is that, you know, everyone should start out by selling people on going to, on, you know, selling kids on doing something they don't want to do, right? It's like, you know, sell a kid on eating broccoli. If you can sell a kid on eating broccoli or going to Hebrew school, then you know you can sell crypto trading to any trad five firm in the world that that isn't pro crypto yet, right? I guess that's the the moral of the story. Is that is that what we're? Yeah, yeah, I think that's it. You know, just just do something that is really really hard, and then everything else gets easier. And you know, that that was it. So you know, since then, it's just been on cruise control. So let's talk about your tr transition. You know, from finance into crypto. So you know, obviously. Uh, Bridgewater is a is a very intense place, but it also wasn't the most, you know, at least historically hasn't been the most pro crypto firm. You know, what drew you from, you know, Bridgewater was about what about two years ago to to moving into crypto and and you know at the time you know love the FPG guys, the floating point group guys, and I'm sure we'll talk about them a bit. But you know, just like us, we were five or six people back then. You know, you joined a very small firm coming from Bridgewater, so. You know, how'd you make that transition? You know, what, what clicked for you on both the crypto side, but also on the, you know, moving into a startup? 
Yeah. I mean, I think for me, you know, coming out of business school, I was really focused on working for a big brand, you know, working at a place that people knew about. It's just this thing that happens when you go to an MBA. It just, it wasn't important to me before, but once I was there, it, you know, I kind of got sucked in with that mentality and sucked away from really just doing the things I was excited about and cared about. Uh, and, you know, a lot of good things about Bridgewater, but huge, huge office, 1500 people it takes forever to get meaningful responsibility, very intense, competitive place, sometimes in a good way, sometimes not. And then I met the CEO of Floating Point Group, John Purfoy, who is one of the most outgoing and friendly people, you know, I, I've ever met. And it was just so different the way that he thought. And then I met his co-founders, the way that they thought and the whole culture of the firm actually is what drew me in when I just saw that you could go to a place that, you know, had 10 people really shape things, really take meaningful responsibilities and do it in a really collaborative environment. So it was the culture more than anything else. And then I found crypto actually to have that culture across the industry through meeting you, other people like you. And um, yeah, then I just got lucky that I also happened to join at the beginning of a bull market. So that was fun too. Um, so those things just kind of lined up. And it's been a really good change. And, you know, for me, it's crypto all in at this point, um, not ever really looking back to traditional finance. I have a lot of former colleagues that reach out to me and ask how they can get into crypto. And I think that's the direction we see things going. And I kind of feel lucky that I just found the right people to get in the journey earlier. So it really was the people, not crypto itself that brought you in initially. Oh, yeah, it was 100% of the people. I mean, I, I had exposure to crypto even at business school. Um, Gary Gensler was one of my professors. Meltem also went to Sloan. She came in as a guest speaker. Jeremy Allaire from Circle, he came in to talk. I mean, we had great crypto leaders coming into our classrooms all the time. And it was interesting to me, but still, I, I wasn't kind of pulled into the industry. Um, so it was really the culture that brought me in. And then once I you know, actually started working in the space and saw all the potential for new use cases, for new trading opportunities, uh, you know, then sort of there was a, a business opportunity also that I was excited about. But the driver for me from the beginning was 100% culture. And I think that's actually something that's really important to note, you know, for people listening, like crypto has an unbelievable culture. Like, yes, there is, you know, you see on Twitter, the bro culture and this and that. But above anything else, this is a community. And it's like, everyone is so helpful to each other. And like, you know, we just did, we actually just hosted a happy hour with the winter mute folks. Uh, together. And, you know, we have a new chief revenue officer who just joined after, you know, 30 years in, in traditional finance. And after he's like, my one key takeaway is that people here are just so nice and friendly and collaborative and want to work together. And it's really such a cool thing. Like you actually, you know, genuinely feel good every time you go to Nevada or a happy hour, right? You don't feel like people are fishing you for information or anything like that, which I think is, is so awesome. But so, so David, on that note, so how did you go from liking the culture to crypto lover? I mean, like, you know, cause now you're so passionate about crypto. Did that transition happen naturally? Did it happen fast? Did it take time at first? Were you like, you know, what is this, you know, fake internet money thing or like, how did that happen? Yeah. Yeah. And, I think it happened really fast, actually. Um, so, you know, we were, it was 2020 when I made the switch and we're in the pandemic, all the stimulus is going on. I was at Bridgewater before that, a macro shop that was very bullish on gold as sort of a inflation play as a way to sort of, you know, kind of play the stimulus that the government was put into the economy. And gold was doing okay. It wasn't performing that great. It was, you know, not as good as expected. 
Um, and I started hearing about Bitcoin, like, you know, when I joined Floating Point Group and started reading about these institutions that were getting into Bitcoin and, you know, really established firms. Like, obviously, there's, you know, MicroStrategy and there's sort of an outlier. But I think for me, it was really the um, when I heard about Mass Mutual investing some of their balance sheet in Bitcoin, right? A 100 plus year old Massachusetts you know, insurance company. That's as. And I think it must have been as close to the time that Tudor was. It must have been close to the time that Tudor was getting involved as well. And like Paul Tudor Jones mm-hmm. you know, came out, right? So it was that yep, same kind of exactly. momentum. Yeah. Yep. It was that same time. It was fall of 2020. And I, you know, my first week in crypto working full time, Bitcoin went from like 15,000 to 19,000. And I pretty aggressively sold all my gold, bought Bitcoin with all of it. And I basically was just investing in gold. Like I wasn't even touching stocks. I was just a gold bull. So I switched really fast. And then you know what happens? You sort of go out the risk curve. You, you buy some Bitcoin, then you buy some ETH, and then you buy some Solana, and then you're buying all sorts of coins that I don't even remember their names anymore. So, and those latter ones probably did David worse. Some, I wouldn't call them investment recommendations. And by the way, nothing we say here is an investment advice, just to clarify. But I definitely suggested mm-hmm. David and I used to riff every single week. We used to, you know, chat every week and uh, you know, shared some questionable assets where, you know, some of them have done very well, others, you know, well, you know the story with crypto, right? Anyone listening, right? You know, others have gone, you know, to to zero. Yeah. I, I gotta say that if I if I had, you know, the the diamond hands that you had, Josh, I'd be in a better shape. But I was not always as patient as I should have been, did a lot more trading than I should have been doing. And yeah, I mean, I still did okay. Still glad I, I got into the space. But the bull market gets you, you know, excited about things that maybe you shouldn't be excited about sometimes. Well, the, um, the, the whole thing but, you know, is that was when, you start going, when you start this transition of going from like, I think this is a good investment or trading opportunity to if this just doubles one more time, I can buy a yacht. That's when you know you need yes. to be selling. And don't worry, I also got yeah. to that point in like late last year. I remember when I was at DOS London, this conference, Digital Asset Summit in London, which must have been around November of last year. I was like, if we just double one more time then, and you know that's the top, you know it's never going to happen. So, Yeah, exactly. Because every time you double, you just want to double once more because yeah. every double after the first double is just so much more doubling. So it really, it really adds up. And a, a bull market can be really exciting, but also really distracting. Um, but yeah, I did all sorts of crazy things, you know, staking for unrealistic yields and just really, you know, I, I kind of really ape into the space, you know, full force. Um, and, and that's the best but... way to get into the space, right? Like for anyone listening who's not yet gotten and, you know, created a MetaMask wallet and interacted with DeFi, I think that's the thing that I suggested to you actually when you were first getting getting into the space. I was like, download a MetaMask wallet, start interacting lose some money because without losing money, yep. you never, you don't, you know, you really don't understand how these things work. And once you lose money, you realize, you know, you, you start to understand the me- mechanics of all of this. And it really all starts to make a lot more sense. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. The actual pain of losing money definitely helps as part of the education process. Um, right. You know, that's uh, going back to Bridgewater days. Uh, Ray Dalio had a quote. He said, pain plus reflection equals progress. So um, you have some pain, you reflect on it and you get better learn how to deal with things better. And yeah, and for me, you know, at this point, um, you know, definitely much less of a trader. I don't try to be a trader at all, actually. I find that, you know, just having a long-term thesis is a much better way to go and much kind of frees up mental space to focus on other things. But I, I went through that journey and kind of explored all different parts of the ecosystem. 
now I invest, I hold, and I work in the space, which, you know, is great. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, the same thing goes with me, right? Like, you know, we have, you know, obviously the tie is the become the leading provider of data to institutions in crypto. And everyone's like, oh my God, you have all this data. Why aren't you trading using it? And I'm like, just because I have information doesn't mean I know how to trade. Those are very different, uh, diff very different skill sets. And so I'd much rather be a service provider than a day trader. So, but kind of on, on this note of, oh, yeah, go for it, go for it. <laughs> yeah, no, hundred percent. It's a different skill set, right? And I think that just, um, yeah, the, the retail train that took off in the pandemic was just, you know, everyone's doing technical analysis 101, reading the charts, reading the horoscopes, reading the charts with the horoscopes. I mean, there's so many things that I did. Um, and now I realize, okay, what are my limitations? Like the original thesis that I had about Bitcoin, that, that helped. And that was actually, I was very aggressive with that. And, you know, I think it's important to kind of come back to having a real clear motivation for why you're doing something. And if it's, you know, grounded in some, you know, real facts or long-term views that have logic behind them, you just have a better chance for success. And then kind of worrying on all the day-to-day -day stuff. I mean, there's people that are good at that, but yeah, obviously not me. Yeah. And so transitioning from, all right, so so to Ray Dalio's quote, right, you made some mistakes, you lost a lot of money, and then you ended up at Winterview. And now, you know, kind of ready to, to, to kind of hit the ground running. You've been here for a while, right? I think you've been in your role for, for over, over, uh, over half a year at this point, it's it's pretty crazy. But can you kind of speak about why yeah. you made that transition to Wintermute? Obviously, you know, I think you still love and have a tremendous amount of respect for the FPG guys. So, you know, curious as to why you made that change and speak to us a little bit about Wintermute. What does Wintermute do and what, what got you so excited about the firm? Yeah, absolutely. I think actually my first podcast that I heard in crypto was of you interviewing John Perfoy, the CEO of FPG. So you know, kind of crazy that I'm here. I made it to the podcast, but Wintermute. Yeah. So what drove me really to join Wintermute was, you know, I, I always heard about Wintermute as one of the world's best crypto market makers with an expertise in DeFi with sort of this unique um, team that had uh, experience executives and traders from traditional finance, from Optiver and a deep bench of DeFi talent, DeFi developers and a team that was really, you know, focused on the DeFi ecosystem. So to me, being at a market maker in Wintermute in particular was a chance to, to get exposure to the market making business, you know, in, in a sense of partnering with projects on liquidity and working with more crypto native firms and also get exposed to sort of the venture side of the ecosystem. Wintermute does a lot of investing. So I was, you know, interested in that. And uh, this was, you know, we also do OTC. So that kind of was a way to both service you know, all the traditional finance networks that I knew from my time at Bridgewater through our OTC line, and then also get deeper into the crypto rabbit hole through our market making projects and venture line. And, you know, I, I happened to know someone that worked at Wintermute, saw him at all the conferences, Jonathan, and always liked him, always heard good things about Wintermute. And so, you know, once the opportunity was there, it was just a great chance to really just go deeper down the rabbit hole. Um, so I, I kind of got my baseline of education from FPG and got to go deeper in through Wintermute. So I actually, on my last episode, I believe it was the last one, I brought on Jonah Van Borg, who's the head of trading at Cumberland. And so, you know, we've had a, mm -hmm. a, a large number of other liquidity providers in this space on the podcast. What differentiates Wintermute? What makes Wintermute, you know, different, but also better than, than some of the others that we've had on? Yeah, I think a few things. So, so first, you know, a lot of respect for the other market makers that are just out there. Um, I think we have a few sort of advantages. One is, you know, 
being in the space since 2017 and being fully focused on crypto, that gives us some edge in terms of the infrastructure that we built out, our trading capabilities. Um, so I guess you'd have to talk about it, you know, one business line at a time. But on the OTC side, our real edge, I think, comes in trading large scale of the altcoins, right? So kind of BTC and ETH, very competitive space. You know, some of those trades will win, some of those trades will lose. You know, when a counterparty is asking for a quote, sometimes they'll go with us, sometimes they won't. But when you start to go down sort of the less liquid coins, we trade 250 tokens and we can do them at scale. And at scale means, you know, minimum clip size of $100,000, but we can do clips in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So we have the infrastructure built out to take on huge amounts of risk to give really competitive pricing. We're trading across all the major exchanges and we're also trading on DeFi. So on the major exchanges, you know, we're, we're either the top or in the top few in terms of market share, right? So 10 to 30% of, you know, many exchanges volume is winter mute. So there's only sort of a handful of market makers of OTC desks that have that kind of reach. And again, given that we market make for so many top projects, gives us the ability to also effectively OTC those same tokens at scale. So that I think is probably, you know, kind of just to like sum it up, it's really our our altcoin coverage, our DeFi expertise, and having a, a team that has both traditional finance experience as well as DeFi developers under the same roof. And so I'm actually really excited to dive into liquidity, which we'll do in a second. But you mentioned one thing, which is market making for token projects. That's a pretty novel idea to somebody who's not from crypto. Can you kind of speak about what that is and what that means, like what that business line is? Mm -hmm. So yeah, market making for projects is essentially, uh, you know, when a token, when a project has a token and they're getting ready to get listed on a centralized exchange or multiple centralized exchanges, they often hire a market maker to ensure that there's a strong order book, that there's good liquidity so that investors and traders can easily move in and out of positions. So we're, we essentially act as the market maker. We're not taking a position. We're not, you know, long or short. We are just putting orders and trading on both sides of the book so that other market participants can easily trade in and out of whatever positions they want to trade with. That's pretty important for crypto because the markets are very inefficient. Tokens are traded on many venues. Pricing can sometimes be different between one venue and another. And liquidity is often not great. Liquidity is really just the ease of which you can move in and out of positions. So market makers make it easier to move in and out of positions. And for a token, a project to do well, they have to have a lot of things going for it. They have to have you know a good community, good following, good marketing, good investors, but good liquidity with a good market maker supporting that liquidity is often one of those key ingredients that helps a token survive and thrive over the long run. And and the exchanges, correct me if I'm wrong, some of them have minimum volume and liquidity requirements, right? With so so that they don't delist these assets. Yeah, I mean, exchanges all have their own criteria and projects go through a process to um, get listed on exchanges. Some exchanges require a project to have a market maker because exchanges are interested in volume, right? They want to have as much volume as possible. That's how they get paid. As a market maker, we can't commit to a certain volume level because volume is dependent on people, other participants trading against you know liquidity that a market maker like us is posting. So if a market maker does commit to a certain volume level, that should instantly raise a flag because you know that suggests they might be trading against themselves or you know maybe making a promise they can't really keep. But what the market maker can do is create that liquid environment so that the volumes then follow. And, and you're 100% right that 
for exchanges, that's, you know, volume is an important criteria and, you know, liquidity helps bring, can potentially help bring volume. And so, you know, let's talk about liquidity now. So can you speak to the liquidity of digital asset markets? You know, being able to trade 250 assets is, I mean, that's a tremendous number of assets. I'm assuming you can't trade 250 million at $300 million, right? I mean, granted the top 250 coins may not even be that large, right? But can you kind of speak about, mm-hmm. you know, how, how, you know, like obviously every asset is different, right? And different days are different, but like, I want to trade at, uh, you know, the a hundredth coin by market cap. And I want to sell $25 million worth of that coin. Will you just, you know, obviously you're quoting a price, but you're taking, you're assuming that risk and you're trading it over time. Like how does it actually work? How much liquidity is there? How long does it take you to work these orders? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. It's a question. So we, whenever we trade, we act as the full principal on the other side of the trade. So we're not a broker. We're not passing off the trade to another entity. We're taking on that full risk ourselves which in a way is good for whoever's trading against us because then there's no, we're no, there's no additional intermediary, right? Like often there's other players in the ecosystem that they play as an intermediary and might even get the actual, you know, original pricing and liquidity from us. Um, and, and we do it through our algorithmic trading systems, right? So the fact that we're trading algorithmically across all these venues gives us the ability to A, you know, sort of offset our risk, in a way that doesn't impact the market because we're you know on, on over 80 venues there's just so many ways for us to sort of take that position and hedge out of it and also our systems are just built to understand you know how much risk we can take on to take on big amounts of risk but again always hedging out of it always getting back to that market neutral position that's kind of critical for us we want to be liquid and market neutral so you know looking back at you know the past four months we had these sort of two different but closely in timing events of you know just huge drawdowns in the market one around luna ust the other around celsius and three arrows and during both those periods uh we did fine because we were market neutral you know we kind of there's arbitrage opportunities during those moments of volatility so those are actually great trading moments for us uh, but we're never caught in position so it's it's again comes down to having really sophisticated systems that can take on risk hedge out of it and do it in a way that gives a competitive price and so a few things First, as you mentioned, 80 trading venues, which is kind of this like crazy concept to, you know, anyone not in crypto or is there really liquidity on 80 venues? Are you mostly doing that for the issuers or you or is it because they've requested that there's there's, you know, that that there is, you know, liquidity on those different venues and, you know, price discovery or or is it the fact that you actually need all 80 venues to, you know, be able to trade these 250 assets? What's what's driving that? I mean, that's such a large number. Yeah, so I'd say for, um, you know, there's definitely a concentration of exchanges that have the majority of the volume, right? So, you know, there might be 80 venues, but there's this much smaller group where the more material amount of volume actually takes place, more material amount of liquidity is actually posted. But the 80 includes both DeFi venues. So we're very active on DEXs across multiple chains, multiple ecosystems, right? And for the long tail of assets, that just helps us sort of have another source of venues to trade on. It also enables us to keep the price in line between CFI and DeFi. When there's a token that's listed in both you know, types of venues, we can keep that price in line by arbitraging the difference in price between those two. So yeah, 80 is a big number. It includes a lot of DeFi exchanges, a lot of DEXs on multiple, you know, a range of different chains. The actual number of 
exchanges where you know majority of liquidity is posted is much less than that. But it's still really important to have sophisticated systems to be able to execute really efficiently between the ones that matter. Because there still is a fragmentation of markets, even if it's amongst five to 10 exchanges, that still is sort of a, a kind of a big operational workflow to trade on even that smaller number of venues. So how do you guys think about risk management as it relates to DeFi, right? Obviously you guys are principal, so your guys are the ones that are taking on all the risk, but like, how do you think about risk management, I guess, across everything, right? If, if you're, if you're going to take my, if you're going to, you know, quote me a price on $50 million worth of token 87 on the list, right? How, how do you even like think about pricing in risk? Like, can you guys even get insurance on any of this? I presume not like. I'm sure you've had capital in certain places that, you know, have gotten hacked. I mean, it's it's kind of impossible not to just given the sheer amount of, of venues. So how do you guys even start to think about risk? Yeah, I mean, I think the sort of risk management, risk philosophy really um, starts from the top uh, of our organization. So our founder and CEO, Evgeny, uh, he was at Optiver during the 2008 financial crisis. So witnessed firsthand the things that could go wrong as a trader and, so our, our approach kind of goes back to that core of being market neutral and being liquid. And, you know, as far as DeFi venues, we have, um, we're not just trained on DeFi, we're sort of active users and active on the governance side too. So we try to be pretty plugged into what's going on and, you know, know what's legit and what smells fishy way before, you know, a market implosion may happen. So, for example, we have a few people on our team that are fully dedicated to DeFi research, to, um, you know, being involved in governance, to looking into protocols, to, you know, seeing what works, what makes sense, what doesn't, what teams are on top of their problems, what teams aren't. Uh, sometimes we're investors in some of these tokens. Sometimes we're market making for them. But if we're using them, we really want to understand them. So that's a thing that we've invested in. And, uh, yeah, we're always sort of. You know, even though our trading is high frequency, day to day, minute to minute, second to second, we're always thinking about the things that could go wrong, you know, a few months from now and preparing for them. Because in crypto, there's so many risks, you know, exchange getting hacked, uh, you know, a lender going down. I mean, yeah, we saw what happened the past four months. If you had your assets locked in any number of parties, you would have really lost a lot of money. Um, so I think for us, it comes back to, you know, we're providing liquidity, so we have to be liquid too. And we have to really know that our assets are under our control and that we can move them around as needed. So you mentioned ventures a few different times. Can you talk a little bit about Wintermute's uh, Winter venture arm and what, what you guys invest in, what you do, kind of what your thesis is? Yeah, absolutely. So for us, it really just happened naturally. As a market maker, we had all these great projects coming to us that were often asking for investing, asking for us to invest before they were ready to launch a token. They wanted us on their cap table that, you know, there's all sorts of strategic reasons why a project might want a market maker like Wintermute to, to be with them. So we just had all these opportunities. We started investing and then we really, um, we realized we needed to like structure it and scale it in a more sustainable way. So we hired someone with private equity experience to join our ventures team, build out the investment process. And basically what we look for are, anything is anything really in the crypto ecosystem that we think is going to help make the ecosystem stronger. There's definitely a focus on DeFi because we're so active on DeFi and we can be helpful to DeFi projects. So we want to invest in things both that we think are going to make this ecosystem stronger and where we can actually help. 
So if there's a DEX, we can trade on it. If there's a lending borrowing protocol, we can borrow from it. We can give real feedback. We, we want to be strategic investors, right? We don't want to just invest in something because you know we think there's a good return, but we also want to be able to be part of the success and contribute to that success. Um, so yeah, it, it really kind of, you know, I'd say there is a concentration in DeFi, but we've expanded to a lot of infrastructure plays. We don't just invest in tokens. We also invest in equity. And uh, yeah, it's been really a, a great way to get to know projects at a really early stage before they're ready to list or to sort of build a relationship with a more established project or company that, you know, has the same mission as us, which is ultimately to advance the decentralized financial system. And so a, you know, I guess a similar, you know, and kind of related question, you talked a lot about DeFi. Uh, one of the questions that I've asked a few guests in the past is permission DeFi. What do you think about, you know, the idea of having, you know, permissioned private DeFi? Do you think there's any legs to it? Is Wintermute investing in it? Obviously, Wintermute will invest in permissionless DeFi and, and interacts with it. But do you think there's demand for it on the more, you know, TradFi, traditional institutional side? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think permission DeFi is, you know, a really great way to bring in institutions not comfortable with DeFi compliance risk um, into the fold and into DeFi activity. So it's for sure an area that we'll look at. I think there's a are lot of different ways that, I mean, I know there's you know, very little, but are, are you guys market making on permission DeFi right now? Is, are you engaged yet or not really? You know, we might be using permission DeFi in sort of a borrowing capacity. So we're always looking to borrow more capital. So, you know, permission lending pools is, you know, attractive for us. We're not, we're not active. We're not lenders. We don't lend. We just borrow. So that's just something to know too, because we want to basically use all the capital we can to trade more. There's kind of no need for us to lend. Um, but yeah, we'll use permission DeFi in a way where, you know, sort of borrowing pools. Um, that's one way. And yeah, I think, you know, my view on sort of what I'm seeing from institutions stepping into the space it's uh it's a really good way to get over a lot of KYC and compliance objections. So I think permission DeFi is is a real important space. And I think in general, when you think about permission lists versus permissioned or decentralized versus centralized, my personal view is that the centralized entities will still have an important role even as the decentralized world grows. Right? I mean, I think there's sometimes still a need to grab a phone and, you know, call someone or have a person to help on the other side. And so centralized entities can take all sorts of form, forms in the form, form of service and the form of authentication. Um, but I don't think everything will be decentralized, but I think a lot of what is currently centralized can be decentralized. So I don't think it's really about going to one extreme. I just think it's about moving from where we are right now to making things more efficient and more open, that's probably the two things that are most important, more efficient and more open. So people have more access to it and just the economics are, are just efficient. You're not investing and spending money on things that can be done more cheaply. Those are probably the two things that I think matter. And then because you're saving money, you can sort of distribute the returns or rewards to you know the stakeholders rather than the middlemen. And so what has surprised you most about crypto, if anything, you know, just coming from traditional finance? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the, the culture really was a shock, right? I mean, in terms of how helpful people are in crypto, it's just like when you go to an event and you can just go up to anyone that works in crypto, you know, especially if they've been in the space for a while and just talk to them and, you know, 
exchange telegrams, find a way to work together. People are just so open and receptive. That was really pleasantly surprising how smart people are, right? I think, um, you know, with all like the memes and just like funny, stupid stuff people do in crypto, I think there's like a reputation from the outside that people are just you know kind of morons. But like, if you look at my work and just see all the telegram messages and like just there's not even words. There's just pictures. Like my my kid looks at it and she thinks it's like a cartoon. She doesn't think it's like I'm working. She laughs. Yeah, we all sees, like, we all interact with cats like everywhere. stickers. <laughs> we all chat with Telegram. Yeah, we, we, like, I'll be I'll be like messaging like a PhD from Oxford with you know Pepe stickers. <laughs> it's it's insane, and the amount of thought that goes into which sticker to choose because you can see when someone's looking for a sticker. <laughs> it's like you'll have these like CIOs of big crypto funds spending like 30 seconds searching for the right sticker in a chat, right? So how much time people spend on that, you wouldn't, it was a surprise to realize how smart people were also, right? Um, like really young, but really, really smart. And the amount that you have to constantly learn to keep up, I mean, it's just such a fast moving space and there's so many smart people in it that are, that are very humble about how smart they are, that don't show it off because they hide behind their stickers. Um, I think that was a pretty surprising thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it's actually unbelievably crazy how fast the space moves. Like, I, I paused the podcast for a year, and I, you know, granted, I try to ask some of the same questions, but the market has changed so much. I mean, the thing is, like, and, and we talk about this a lot on the podcast. Like, things are changing every week, every month. I mean, the narrative changes. Like, remember, I mean, DeFi one point is kind of like when you started. Then DeFi 2.0 came. And honestly, like DeFi 2.0 feels old at this point. Like now we're waiting for DeFi 3.0. Like at this point, the market's ready to move on. And I mean, the crazy thing is like, you know, as a VC, you guys invest in stuff. And then like three months later, you know, some of that stuff already is is just late. I mean, it, like it's already just like, it, it's already like old technology because, you know, this is open source code that people are just iterating on and changing and and optimizing. It's actually, it's really hard to be a VC when things move so fast and, you know, you even have to deal with like a six month unlock on some of these investments that you're making. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And by the way, DeFi 3.0, I thought I discovered it last year. I found some projects that were labeling themselves as DeFi 3.0. So, um, you know, turn, turn to short-term profit on some of those. But um, yeah, I think that uh, it, it is moving so fast. Like I'm just thinking, you know, to the, um, you know, the people coin, where you know there was the DAO that was trying to buy the U.S. Constitution, and that was that was like almost a year ago. That was Thanksgiving of last year, and you know, now you just see so many DAOs organizing in so many ways to do so much. Like I'm part of this group in Boston called Boston DAO, where we're like a you know pretty wide-reaching group that is engaging with members of the state senate and you know finding ways to actually do things as a DAO to make the Boston crypto scene, you know, the crypto capital of so the, Massachusetts, at least. So, so I'm actually in one DAO, um, by the way. I'm in one DAO, but the only DAO I'm in, I don't even know if it's a proper DAO. It's called the Josh DAO, and we have about 50 Joshes in Telegram on a group. And every time somebody joins named Josh, everybody yeah. just writes, hi, Josh. Hey, Josh. Hello, Josh. So that's the only DAO that I'm personally involved with. So. <laughs> That that seems pretty nice, honestly. I, I'd almost want to change my name just to be part of that. Um, I, it's really, I feel like it's really we could do cool. a David Dow, but 
Yeah, <laughs> any David Davis Dow listening, too, message too David Mickley so you guys can build a competing DAO with us. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we compete. I mean, David's pretty common name. We definitely would win on numbers. I don't know about quality people though. We have two Josh Rosenthal's in the Josh Dow, so we have multiple of the same full oh. names at this point. So, you know, we we probably have wow. a pretty. That's crazy. They can fork it and have it. Yeah, yeah, you do. Wow. Props to Josh Dow. So, you know, you've been in crypto for a few years now, and it's very clear to the listeners. I mean, it's in, it's honestly incredible knowing you how far you've managed to come in the last two years from our, our early conversations. I mean, you now know, well, you probably knew way more than me six months in, but now you clearly just know so much more than I do. So, you know, having been in this space for so long, how have you seen, you know, you were trying to sell to institutions at Floating Point Group. Like, how have you seen that landscape change, uh, you know, over the last, you know, uh, you know, two years or so? Yeah, I think there's definitely like an interesting rhythm to it where, and first of all, yeah, you know, Josh downplays his, his knowledge. You know, I will always, always be a student of, you know, anyone as a member of Josh Dow, especially <laughs> Josh Frank. But yeah, it is, um, it is interesting to think about the past few years. So I think when I first got in, it was, you know, kind of the more sophisticated institutions that, we're thinking about crypto for some time, said, okay, things are lining up like pandemic, stimulus, Bitcoin. It's a good play. Let's go. And then towards the spring, summer, fall, I guess like last year, a year ago, you had people that were starting to FOMO in, right? From the institutional space. A lot of macro hedge funds weren't doing well, you know, stocks were doing great. So you just had a lot of reasons why people in TradFi were trying to leave their jobs and work in crypto because they saw all the 25 year olds with Ferraris and, you know, their bonuses were flat or down. So you saw that sort of craze happening. And then the crash, I think, scared off a lot of the sort of, you know, people that were just jumping in for the FOMO. But what you happened, what happened during that whole period from two years ago until now is that the really big firms like the titans of financial services were doing research and were putting together working groups and maybe even were running their own money, you know, partner capital that they weren't sharing with the world um, and getting ready for big plans. And those plans have not slowed down at all. And what's really interesting right now in this bear market environment is that at Wintermute, we've been as busy as ever onboarding new OTC counterparties. And I think what's driving that is that people finally have, the people that were interested in onboarding finally have the time to take a step back to go through the onboarding. It doesn't take too long, but still, it's just like to onboard in the middle of a bull market seems like, you know, you, you could be missing something in the next six hours. So now they have two days or, you know, whatever, how many hours they need to send the docs to onboard. So you have that happening with a lot of funds that, you know, their plans were still and steady. And then what you also have happening is the really big firms that just take forever to do anything are still working on what they were two years ago, what they were one year ago and getting things ready for the next wave. And that's really what, we're building for at Wintermute is the next wave. You know, it might be in six months, it might be in two years, it doesn't really matter. We're just getting ready for it. And the biggest firms are hiring crypto teams at a pace I've never seen before. And those that were kind of, you know, in it for the broader thesis and not just to, you know, make money over a quarter, they're onboarding and getting ready to trade. And, you know, you mentioned onboarding more liquidity providers now than ever. Or, or sorry, more 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 counterparties. Uh, I apologize than ever. Have you seen any any skew? So one thing that we're actually finding really interesting at the tie, 
this month we are signing more traditional hedge funds than crypto hedge funds. And that has never happened before. So we're actually seeing, and, and obviously you, you mm -hmm. it's a little bit of a difference because for us, it's a subscription platform and maybe the crypto hedge funds have less money than they previously had given the state of the market. Whereas more of the traditional guys, you know, their crypto exposure was very small and, you know, they're take, placing longer term bets. But I'm wondering if you're seeing a similar thing because it's, it's actually been shocking, you know, how there's been this really clear switch for us in, in the last 60 or so days where the crypto hedge funds are slowing down a little bit. But the, the large traditional hedge funds, I mean, the top 20, 50, 100 hedge funds in the world, right? They're starting to onboard, at least with us. And, and it's just kind of, it's really interesting. I mean, because, you know, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, we'd start talking to these guys and, you know, these, these deals are three years and two years in the making, right? These, these didn't happen overnight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah, um, definitely, uh, you know, make sure that those guys are, you know, know where the good liquidity is at too once they get going. So um, you can send them a link to this episode so they can listen right after. But yeah, I think um, I think we're seeing, I mean, the crypto native ecosystem has always been one that we've been pretty close with. So that has been pretty steady. I don't think it's slowed down for us. Um, you know, there's a lot of new funds that have launched, right? So partners at one fund will leave, start their own fund, that sort of thing. Or, you know, someone that worked on a project, made a lot of money, then will raise capital and have a fund. So we're still seeing a decent amount of new crypto funds onboarding with us, uh, but definitely more and more traditional finance funds. I think it's driven by a few things. One is you know the phenomenon we just talked about. Another is you know winter mute we trade spot and options. So a lot of the tradfi funds want options. They want a way to sort of get the exposure without dealing with spot directly. So you know we cover options for you know a long list of tokens and definitely seeing a lot of demand for that. And yeah, I think the other other piece is really just they're finally, um, you know, having the time to put things together. You know, I think it's a, a bandwidth question, but yeah, I, I definitely see more and more of them coming and and the huge players take a long time and they're coming too. And so kind of transitioning into, you know, fundamentals and price movement and stuff like that. So what do you think the key drivers or determinants of price movement are in crypto? Yeah, that's what this podcast is all about, right? The fundamental It, it is what it's all about. The podcast is all about yeah. the fact that there is no fundamentals in crypto. No, I'm just kidding. But yeah, you know, it's an of. ironic name. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think, um, I mean, to me, it's narrative. To me, narrative drives things more than anything else. And obviously there's a lot to that. And narrative is just like a very general term. Right. Um, like numbers sometimes tell a story, you know, stories tell a story, uh, you know, news events tell a story. But I think narrative is really a big driver. Right. I mean, what makes crypto so different than equities or any sort of traditional asset class is that there aren't these sort of mean reversions. There's no real like P.E. ratio that things need to be at in order for it to be a stable market. So, you know, when something moves, the momentum kind of takes off. So I think narrative plays a pretty big role. And I mean, what, you know, so much drives narrative right now, I think is the macro conditions. I think, you know, the kind of inflationary environment that we're in, the tightening that we're heading into, I think all of that is affecting crypto and going to for a while. It's just a matter of how much money is available in the systems, how much risk people are willing to take. I think there's, you know, I'm personally bearish for medium to long term on risky assets and I include crypto in that because I think 
inflation is worse than what the market is pricing in right now. I think rates are going to become even worse than what people might think. And those are pretty big drivers. I mean, those are forces that are really hard to fight. You know, maybe there's some assets that can not be as dependent on that, but the more, you know, the more volume there is, the more institutions are trained something, the more correlations you're going to see. So yeah, I think that the macro picture is not pretty um, for in terms of having any sort of bull movement in the short term. But again, to me, that's fine. Like we have so much to do in terms of building out our relationships for whenever the next wave hits that it's a long game. And, um, you know, we just want to be ready whenever it is. But yeah, that's my short-term view, not investment advice. And so, you know, you talked about crypto becoming more correlated with macro markets. You know, however, you know, as we've seen in crypto, this is a very narrative-driven market, which means that there are times where certain assets outperform and other assets underperform, right? You know, an example of that is fan tokens have, for whatever reason, been doing extraordinarily well. I don't know if they still are, but as of like last week, they were. And, you know, in crypto last week is like seven years, but let's just assume they're still doing well. But but as we think through coming out of this bear market, whenever it happens, if it's in six months, if it's in 12 months, if it's in two years, it doesn't matter. How do you think through the fundamentals of tokens and what is going to drive price movement? Because I, I mean, unless you think every token is going to perform in the same way, every token is going to do just as well. Like, how do you think through, you know, what, what are like, you know, you, you talked about not being a trader anymore and, and becoming, you know, somebody who's really taking a longer term view on, on assets. So when to listeners trying to do this, how should they think about fundamentals and where they should invest? Yeah, no, that's a fair question. So I think, I think a few things, I think the first is a really hard thing to measure, but the, it's important to assess sort of the community and hype behind something. I think there's probably like two levels. There's one like the product and there's other like the community and hype. And those are equally important, right? The community hype is probably more important, but product technology also important. Product technology often brings good community and hype. But I think that something that has the best product, the best technology doesn't have the community, doesn't have the hype is not going to do well. So I'd just say like that's the order of priorities. And when I say community and hype, there's many ways to measure that. Um, you know, you want a project that's backed by good investors. You want a project that has a lot of followers, that has a lot of engagement. You want a project that developers are coming to. Um, you know, there's ways to do research on this. You can jump into Telegram groups. You can see who's building what. You can see what products are being built on top of something. You can just talk to developers and see what they're seeing. Uh, so I think that's important. And then the product technology, is, is this thing really adding value? Is it just a copy of something else? Is it really adding value? Is it really doing something new? I think there's a lot of excitement right now around layer twos and Ethereum, kind of the potential for those to unlock. There's excitement about some new layer ones, you know, whether those will be more scalable and be more efficient. And, you know, I'm not uh, a coder, so I actually don't really know how to validate directly whether one tech is better than another, but uh, I could talk to experts that are and get their opinions. So I think with crypto, it's probably hard to be an expert on everything. So it's important to find friends, build relationships with people that can help you do diligence and, you know, get the sense of whether something is legit or not. But yeah, those are probably the two key metrics I would look at. And then if you're looking at something at the project level, you know, like actually if you know the team and it's almost like a venture investment opportunity, I mean, it's so cliche to say this, but I think having a strong team and strong founders is the most important thing. And what does it actually mean to be a strong team? I mean, a few things. First, it's, you know, 
uh, someone that's you know smart, thoughtful. When you ask them questions, it's clear they've thought about those problems before. Uh, the second is you know the right experience to solve the problem, and the third is that they've actually identified a real problem that they're um, trying to tackle, uh, and they'll pivot, they'll change, they'll make adjustments. But I, I think if you find someone that's doing all those things, then that's at least some of the ingredients for success. Um, so it's as much of an art as it is a science. But yeah, those are the things I would think about. But the community and hype. I wouldn't underestimate that. And that can also go back to a founder level. Like as someone able to rally people around them, to get people behind them, to get people to integrate, to invest, it, it all comes back to the same thing. And so this is my new favorite question, I think, or it's at least temporarily my favorite question. Fast forward 24 months, how many of the tokens that are in the top 100 today by market cap will still be there and why? In the top, how many top 100? So take the top 100, right? By market cap today. If we looked at that yeah. same list in 24 months, how many of the top 100 that are there today will be there 24 months from now? Yeah, that's a great question. And I guess we have to do a podcast exactly, you know, 24 months from now to test. I'd say, I'd say under 50. Yeah, I'd say under 50. I think there's going to be a lot of turnover. Turnover. And I think that's the nature of the space. There's all these rotations. You know, people want the next exciting thing. So for a project to last through multiple cycles takes a lot of endurance. Um, so I'd say under 50. And so, you know, to the venture investing question again, you know, there's obviously a lot of speculation, right? And we've talked a lot about speculation and community and hype and, you know, that, those kinds of things. But what about real world use cases? Is, does crypto have any real world value or is it just speculation? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. We didn't talk about any of that, actually. So I think there's so much opportunity in that space, and none of it's really been cracked. I mean, you know, you see some things, you know, working around data, working around networks, but I think that is really just the tip of the iceberg. To me, real world use cases are probably going to need to come through a B2B model to start. Right. Like I think direct to consumer right now is really hard to get, you know, everyday users to adopt crypto, especially in this environment with the sort of skepticism that people have given, you know, what's happened over the past four months. So yeah, when you think about the long-term promise of crypto, which, you know, is really the long-term promise of blockchain technology, it's to solve all these problems in, you know, a more efficient way that's open. So I think that had you know so little has been done on that, and that's probably a space that you know there's a lot of interesting projects that that I actually even see, you know, around film, around art, around all sorts of stuff. But to actually gain traction is really really hard. So I, I think it's going to happen. Do you have a thesis on the first thing that's going to gain traction? I think it will be something really boring like supply chains. You know, like. I don't think it's going to be something fun and retail facing. I think it will just be like a real pain point that, you know, blockchain can solve. Yeah. We're, we're a, we're that, a picks and shovels beat. I mean, I think there's probably like other fun. projects that, yeah. you know, do well in moon that, you know, some famous film actor is going to, you know, be the face of, but I don't know if they're necessarily actually going to solve a problem. They might just, you know, make some money with an NFT, but yeah, I think the real things that are going to, be solved are going to be the boring ones that actually a lot of money can be saved by using them. So I'd say something around supply chains is pretty, uh, pretty big opportunity. 
you know, in, in business school, I worked on a project with a friend around mortgage origination and around how blockchain technology can help make mortgage origination uh, more efficient, cheaper, all sorts of things. But it is really hard to get mortgage companies to use, you know, a new technology that's going to hurt their business model in a way, right? They make money by this by being efficient, inefficient. So it's very tricky. It's very tricky to challenge incumbents, you know, that basically have an interest in keeping things the way they are. So I think, yeah, I think it's going to happen. I just think that there needs to be more developers and more money being invested in those actual use cases. And that is probably the more exciting thing about crypto in the long term is going beyond, you know, like what DEX is going to be the least slippage and the most efficient and really going into like, you know, what sort of products and services can actually make a difference in people's lives, can give them things they couldn't have before and can just make, you know, companies more efficient. So yeah, that's the long-term vision, but we got a lot of work to do to get there. So two things. Earlier in the episode, you talked about the fact that you were using gold as a hedging asset and switched to Bitcoin. But then you also mm-hmm. talked about the fact that you're pretty bearish on crypto because of how correlated it's becoming to macro and because of raising interest rates. So do you now think that Bitcoin is not the risk is not a risk off asset? Has your thesis on Bitcoin changed? Oh yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, I guess it has. I guess it has. You know, I think. I mean, so it's are just you such rotating back to gold? Right? Gold, no, I was about to say that I'm not rotating back to gold. I'm not rotating back to gold because gold is just it's just boring. I mean, even when it does well, it goes up like four percent. You know, it's just it's just not enough to be exciting. I mean, once you're not you go having fun you're not losing thirty percent of your portfolio in a week. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'd rather go down 30% than go up 4%, you know? Uh, it's it's more movement. It's more fun. But yeah, I think that, I mean, gold and Bitcoin have both performed. Gold has performed unusually bad in this environment. So maybe it will still take off. I'm definitely not going back to gold. Basically, my focus is, you know, com- combination of long-term venture play and just holding cash, you know, holding cash, paying my bills, having the liquidity so that if I need it, it's there, which obviously isn't great because cash is being eroded, but I'm basically putting one bucket, you know, into very risky long-term venture bets. And then another very you safe. Go that's how I get my property sales, David. So I, <laughs> I guess I could, I guess I could. Yeah. You know, cash is obviously not a good position either because of inflation. I just want the liquidity so that I have the ability to, to use it when I need it. But it is pretty interesting. My long-term thesis, my long-term thesis wasn't really just about being an inflation hedge. It was also about sort of institutional demand leading to price appreciation, which I think is still there. So I actually think Bitcoin is still still a good buy. My bet is just that it's going to go lower before it goes higher, Right. So that's like a. Do you think it goes lower than your first? Would you would you say Bitcoin was fifteen k when you first joined crypto? Yeah, and I I bought it at like seventeen. So yeah, I think I think it could. You think you go underwater, David? I think it's going to go lower than. I I think it could it could dance around there. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's definitely in the realm of possibility. Like I think the next few months are not going to be pretty, right? And like we're not having a great 
day or two days right now. But I think this is like uh, the next quarter or two, rates are just going to continue to go up. Inflation numbers are going to continue to be bad. Okay, they came down a little bit, but they're still really high. And, you know, the Fed's going to have to sort of slow down, you know, slow things down to keep inflation under control. So I think that's what's going to happen. And, yeah, I think it's going to hurt everything. But when when that sort of event happens, it actually um, it tends to hurt all assets, right? So I think just all assets are going to go right. down. Let's, and- let's end this podcast on a more positive note. So we're getting, we're getting <laughs> two negative, two down. Quick fire. What are you most we excited are. about in crypto? What am I most excited about in crypto? I'm most excited about the happy hour that Wintermute just hosted with the tie. It happened last Thursday night and 165 people came and maybe even more. We had to stop the list at that number because the fire code just wouldn't allow for more. And it was it was a great event. So I'm excited for the next event that we co-host together. More than more than happy to. And so last question, what is your hottest take right now in crypto? Yeah, hottest take. Yeah, I think that I guess besides my bearish news on the market for the next few quarters, um, hottest take is that crypto regulation in the US is actually going to be a lot better than people think. I like it. I like it. And so... To finish us off, where can listeners find you and learn more about Wintermute's offerings? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can find me on Twitter, David Mickley. You can find Wintermute on our website, wintermute.com. You can also just message me on Telegram, dmickley, D-M-I-C-L-E-Y. If you want to talk OTC, market making, venture, really anything, give me a shout. If you're a friend of Josh, you're a friend of me. Amazing. Well, David, thank you so much. This was awesome. And I hope to do it again soon. Thanks for having me, Josh. It was a pleasure.